The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. Because the financial markets are this ebullient, because we see what I think we could safely describe as bubbles across many parts of the world's financial markets, we have to ask ourselves the question, which is, if it's a bubble, when would it bust? How could it bust and what would happen? And I think we're at greater risk of that in this sort of environment where we're applying such aggressive medicine to a patient that is largely healed in the U.S. It takes the risks of a bubble bursting still higher. That's Kevin Wash, former governor of the U.S. Federal Reserve. As he comments on the extraordinary rebound of the U.S. economy, driven by vaccine development and rollout, after COVID-19 brought America and the world to a standstill. Welcome to episode 10 of In The Know. Kevin Wash provides a unique perspective on the role central banks play during times of economic crisis. Having been handpicked by then chairman Ben Bernanke to join the United States Federal Reserve in 2006 at just 35 years of age. Within two years, the global financial crisis hit. Kevin played a significant role in navigating the chaos and brings a first-hand account of the way the United States central bank steered a course through the turmoil. In this episode, Kevin joins Hamish Douglas, Magellan's chairman and chief investment officer, to discuss his views on the current global economic landscape. What role can central banks play in controlling inflation? Will asset bubbles burst? And where does that leave investors? All this to come shortly. First, a warm introduction from Hamish. Well, welcome back. My name is Hamish Douglas. I'm Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Magellan Financial Group. And you're listening to In The Know. Today, I'm incredibly pleased to be talking with Kevin Wash, who is a former member of the Federal Reserve of the United States. Kevin was at the Federal Reserve during the last financial crisis, And I think there is some extraordinarily interesting issues that are occurring at the moment. So hopefully people will find this podcast extremely well-timed. So firstly, Kevin, welcome. Hamish, it's a real pleasure to be with you and uh, to talk to your listeners. I can't think of a more consequential moment for the US and global economy to have this discussion. Absolutely. Kevin, obviously we talk about a lot of things off the line, but people are probably going to hear about what we often talk about and have been talking about in the last few weeks and the last few months. And maybe you could just start by letting our listeners know a little bit more about you, a bit about yourself and your background, and maybe what was your most memorable moment or maybe even a scary moment uh, during 0809 when you were a member of the Federal Reserve? Sure. So for my background, I will say I first got mixed up with economic policy when I showed up at Stanford a million years ago and uh, the Hoover Institution, a group of economists that at the time included George Schultz and Milton Friedman and a lot of the great thinkers, they were paying $14 an hour for a research assistant and I needed the money. So that was my introduction to economic policy. 
Fast forward uh, many years later, I was working in the White House with uh, Ben Bernanke. He was at the Council of Economic Advisors as chairman. I was a lowly staffer at the National Economic Council. And when the president decided to make him chairman of the Fed, much to my surprise, uh, Ben and others persuade the president to give me Ben's old job as a governor at the Fed. So I showed up there with Ben in 2006. And it seemed like a reasonably calm moment. I thought this was going to be a nice, relaxing way to spend some time after killing myself with all-nighters for four and a half years in the White House. It turned out not to be the case after a few months of transitioning. If you were to ask me what was the scariest moment, it was probably one of those times that was not highlighted in all these various memoirs. And it would have been in the summer of 2008 before... Lehman Weekend and AIG Weekend, and that's when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac effectively failed. At the time, they had something like $5 trillion of outstanding liabilities held by many of the world's largest investors, including foreign governments. And we confronted a situation that weekend where those firms, absent government support, wouldn't be able to pay any of that money back. And to me, that was when it was all but obvious that the system was really in great harm's way. And in some sense, it was scarier then because markets didn't appreciate the fear. When markets are scared, when markets are fearful, in some sense, they're doing their jobs and they're policing. When markets are calm, invariably calm, when the VIX is low, that's when government officials, frankly, should be quite scared. And that was, I thought, quite an alarming moment for policymakers a dozen years ago. Yeah, you probably didn't realise back in 2009 you were just a warm-up act for quantitative easing. It probably looked radical at the time, but really it was just the opening act of the play here. Yeah, I mean, Hamish, I will say, you know, as you make that comment, I laugh, but I feared that. You know, when we created out of full cloth, and I give Ben Bernanke enormous credit for coming up with the broad notion and supporting it as aggressively as we did, At the time, we had no idea that QE1 would prove to be that effective. I think it was our fourth or fifth idea product that we'd rolled out in the crisis. The others didn't seem to work so well, but, you know, it came the point where we would roll out products before the Asian markets opened. I guess I should say before the Australian markets opened so that we'd have a chance of getting through a Monday morning in New York Stock Exchange time when the U.S. Treasury markets opened. And so we would be rolling out products most Sunday afternoons. And so we'd try to agree on what the innovation would be by Wednesday or Thursday, run it up the traps with our government authorities. Some of it involved fiscal support. So we'd race over to the White House by Thursday or Friday. And we'd talk to our other major central bank peers around the world, including at the Reserve Bank of Australia, the ECB. So they were aware of what we were doing so they could join our efforts And that was the rhythm for week after week during the darkest days of the financial crisis. The reason why I laughed when you brought up that point about QE being the opening act is by the time we got to the middle of 2010, I will say much more so than I wish that when the Federal Reserve decided to roll out QE2 in the second half of 2010, this is after the U.S. and global economy had picked up rather dramatically. Growth rates were well above trend from a low base. Things were certainly improving. Markets were functioning. And yet the Fed chose to do QE2. I will say without breaching confidences that I was concerned at the time 
that if we did QE2, we'd end up doing QE346, and it would become a rather permanent feature of a monetary policy toolkit. And that was a grave concern of mine. My concerns weren't shared by most, probably then or now, because if, in fact, we've gone to a world where QE is standard operating procedure, and it's obviously what you do, then governments, economies, markets can grow dependent on it, in which case, when you get hit with a real shock, as we did in uh, March of last year, March of 2020, you end up having to do still more aggressive things because you've convinced the markets that QE is quite normal operations. And Kevin, that's one thing that I must admit I hugely respect about you and always when we're interacting is just your brutal honesty of how you <laughs> read a situation. And maybe just one last bit of background here. Not all our listeners will probably be aware, but you were interviewed by President Trump to be the current Fed chair. And do you think you were too honest in that interview? Obviously, you didn't end up getting the, <laughs> the role and he subsequently said he wished he'd appointed you. But were you too honest when you're sitting in the Oval Office? I, you know, I don't know whether this is a character flaw or a character virtue, but the livelihoods of our fellow countrymen around the world depend on unelected bureaucrats like central bankers to call it the way they see it. It's part of the reason why, at least in the U.S., governors of the Fed are given 14-year terms. This is part of why presidents appoint them. They can be confirmed by a bare majority in the Senate. Is you know Others need to worry about political calendars and the weather. The job of a central banker is to worry about the climate, to look over the horizon, to look around the corner. And you know I'm very happy in the private sector. I'm very happy uh, teaching. But if I'm going to be in government, there's a time where you have to be very team-oriented. And on the question of the interview with President Trump, it was a good interview. I was honored to be there. He interviewed now Chairman Powell on, I believe, a Wednesday. He interviewed me on a Thursday. And I got the what I thought was bad news on the Monday that I didn't get the job. But seeing what they've been through in the last year, maybe it wasn't such bad news after all. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you for that background, uh, Kevin. Maybe we'll move into what's going on now for your sort of brutally honest assessment of what's occurring. You know, the outlook for the US economic growth at the moment looks very rosy, if not explosive, if you look at the figures. The size of the fiscal stimulus is historic by any proportions, with probably more to come. Interest rates are low. Well, they're effectively zero. Vaccines are now being rolled out uh, very effectively in the United States. Summer's around the corner. You know, how are you seeing the economic outlook? And maybe we could split it into two periods, because I think this is important. Over the next 12 months, and then maybe also over the horizon, maybe over the next five years, are we entering a completely new paradigm here, or are there two chapters to play out? So when we, the normal job of an economist, certainly a central banker, as you say, to look over the horizon, what's going to be the state of the economy six or nine or 12 months from now? Because until very recently, what we believed was economic policy, that is fiscal policy and monetary policy, acted what we would describe for 50 years on a bipartisan basis as long and variable lags. Any decision that's made today on stimulus will find its way into the economy sometime later. And I must say I'm struck that there's a brand new regime in economic thought, at least here in the U.S., and uh, Chairman Powell and many of his colleagues have said that they're no longer going to be that focused on the horizon. They're going to look out their window and see whether 
inflation and the economy have hit their objectives? And if so, then and only then will they act. So that's a new paradigm in economic policy. If I follow their counsel and I look out my window right now, this is the strongest economic growth certainly since the early 1980s in the U.S., and I think by the time we're done, we'll say it was the strongest period of growth in the post-war era. So that's an amazing statement, and I would say GDP, overall U.S. output, is basically back to where it was pre-COVID. So we're back at the same level with a growth rate that is markedly higher, and um, I'd say there's two questions from that. One is why, how did that happen? The conventional view is, well, that's because of zero interest rates and quantitative easing and big stimulus from the Congress. I'd say those are far less important. The reason for the level and rate of this economy, the reason why it looks like a V is the V stands for vaccine. The vaccine has been a much more powerful stimulus in getting this economy's legs back under it than fiscal or monetary policy could ever have been. So if you believe that, which I think the evidence is quite overwhelming, and as the vaccines found its way into other countries in size, you see the same effects. If you believe that, you'd say, wow, well, this economy really has quite a bit going for it. And it isn't because we're doing such extraordinary fiscal and monetary policy. It's because of animal spirits in the economy and this incredible antidote. So as I see a, quite a vibrant, strong economy in the U.S., I'm struck by one other fact. We have the loosest financial conditions that we've ever been able to measure in the United States. The mix of fiscal policy, monetary policy, and the rest have conditions looser than they were in the darkest day of the global financial crisis of 08 or 09 or any day in between. And I just didn't think I would be around for a period of such strong growth, such a high level of output, and the decision by policymakers to have such loose policy. So that's a striking feature. That's the moment that we're in now. I think the question that, that you rightly ask is, well, if we adopt an old-fashioned view, which is economists are supposed to look over the horizon, around the corner, what do I see? In the U.S., this economy does want to get back. We've seen the product side of the economy boom because services had been taken out of the economy during the lockdown. We'll see a services boom that will last between now and at least the end of the year. Think of that as the great party once the great lockdown has been undone. And you'll see a very strong move up in prices. We've started to see that already. So for the balance of this year, I would say it's a very strong trajectory, both on the real side and on the nominal side. And so the question thereafter is, is this sustainable? Is this the beginning of a new cycle, or is this an economy that had a, a shock and a release, but that we're in the late stage of? And I would say there, the first thing that economists should do is be humble about our forecast generally, especially at a moment like this. And because we're seeing a brand new application of fiscal and monetary policy in the U.S. and many places in the world, knowing what happens over the horizon is one we should be careful about. But I should say this. I worry that the mix of real economic growth and nominal growth, that is the real side economy and prices, is you could have much more real growth in 2021 than growth in prices. 
But by the time we get into next year, with this kind of very aggressive policy, the nominal GDPs could be the same, but it could be more about price than real side growth come next year. And because I'll just make one final point, Hamish, because the financial markets are this ebullient, because we see what I think we could safely describe as bubbles across many parts of the world's financial markets, we have to ask ourselves the question, which is, if it's a bubble, when would it bust? How could it bust and what would happen? And I think we're at greater risk of that in this sort of environment where we're applying such aggressive medicine to a patient that is largely healed in the U.S., it takes the risks of a bubble bursting still higher. And maybe the Federal Reserve is making statements with a a lot of confidence because let's talk about the inflation equation. In the next 12 months, you're talking about accelerating prices, but central bankers, including the Australian central bank, are saying, yeah, we can see that, but don't worry about it. We know it's going to be transitory. These are just supply chain commodity constraints at the moment. When we pass through all this, we're not going to have inflation. Is your comment on humility the same one on inflation here about how you see the outlook? Do you have a strong view 12 and 18 months out on the inflation side? I suspect you have a strong view within 12 months what's going to be happening to prices. But how should investors be thinking about this question of inflation? Because it really matters for markets. Yeah, well, listen, I think you've made several great points there. First is you and the world's investors think about your portfolios very much with a risk management framework. There are some things that we think we know. There's some things we don't know. So we build portfolios to try to take that account. If that's true of a family or a household or an investor or an asset allocator, surely it should be true of the world's central banks. They need to come to these jobs with senses of risk management. Rarely the right question that a central bank like the Fed should be asking is, If everything goes right, what will we do? No, the question they should have asked in the period between the last crisis and this crisis, a period of 10 years, was what happens if something goes wrong? What should we do about that? What happens if something goes wrong? They should similarly be asking the question today. A lot's gone right since the darkest days of the spring, but what could possibly go wrong from here forward? And um, when I hear government policymakers offering reassurance after reassurance and suggesting all is benign, I hope they're right. I hope that's part of marketing. But I hope when they leave the microphone, they go back to their jobs and they say, and what happens if we're wrong? My judgment is markets are able to hear complicated messages. Markets will react perfectly well to policymakers saying the three most uncommon words by politicians, and that is, we don't know. And so... I hear a lot of confidence from the Fed these days. I hope they're right about inflation being transitory. But we've never run this experiment. So see if I can place it this way. We've talked a little bit about the extraordinary use of fiscal and monetary policy. The way I'd state that simply is we have pro-cyclical fiscal and monetary policy to an economy that's already back to its peak of 14 months ago. That strikes me as strange. There might be good reasons to do it. So we have that. And then what we hear from the Fed is inflation expectations are well anchored. Well, that has been true for a very long time. 
But the new regime the Fed rolled out last August in Jackson Hole, which I think they called the Powell Doctrine. I should say it's a little different than in the U.S. what we used to call the Powell Doctrine. The Powell Doctrine in the U.S. used to be named after Secretary of State and former General Colin Powell. And that Powell Doctrine was, if you break it, you buy it. No doubt thinking about times of war as we enter various wars around the world. The new Powell Doctrine, this one authored by Chairman Jay Powell, who admittedly, as you say, got the job instead of me, so this could sound completely like sour grapes. The new Powell Doctrine under Jay Powell seems to be whether you broke it or not, the Fed will buy it. So it's a different view. The Fed will buy high-yield bonds in extremists, will buy municipal bonds, and they'll buy treasuries and mortgage bonds, even when the economy and financial markets are functioning, frankly, this well. So when we turn to the question of inflation expectations, which they say are stable, inside this Powell Doctrine, they've announced a brand new monetary strategy. And they say inflation had been running three-tenths of 1% below their 2.0% target, and they want to raise them. The way I'll state that plainly is they're purposefully trying to unanchor inflation expectations and then re-anchor them a few tenths higher. Maybe they'll be successful at that, but inflation expectations are like the big ship at sea. The risk happens when you unanchor it. Can you then re-anchor that boat just a few yards away? Or do the tides pick you up and force you to re-anchor miles and miles off course? That's, I think, a very different set of policies and the re-anchoring of inflation expectations might be done as seamlessly as the Fed would have us suggest, but financial markets are trying to wrestle with that as we speak. So we've seen U.S. Treasury yields move from 91 basis points to as high as 175 basis points before settling back in the last week or so. But I am surprised, Hamish, that there isn't a greater volatility in markets measure of Treasury yields in light of the rather heroic efforts that are novel that the Fed is undertaking. Yeah, and Kevin, markets certainly, even though you see some measures of inflation increasing, markets, if you look at where the 10-year and, and other measures and just equity prices are, they're not pricing yet inflation's really a problem. That doesn't mean markets are right. And I probably sit slightly in the camp that we're going to have a real spike and we're going to have volatility in the next six to 12 months. But ultimately, I sit in the camp that it's probably transitory. But that's irrelevant from our point of view. Our only question we ask ourselves is, what happens if we're wrong? And you said that comment yourself. So what happens if the Fed is wrong here? that inflation expectations become unanchored with what's going on. What would the Fed have to do and how ugly could that be? If they're wrong, it depends when they conclude themselves that they're wrong. Then having concluded they were wrong, have the courage to announce to the world that they were wrong and then have the capability to do something about it. The longer one tries to hide from whatever facts are on the ground. I don't know what the facts are going to be on the ground this summer or fall. I'm open-minded to a wide dispersion of those. If the Fed is late to a conclusion they were wrong, tries to figure out a way to describe it, to suggest, no, they weren't wrong somehow, and it takes them a while to get the courage of their new convictions, the longer they wait, the more expensive it will be. The bigger shock it will be to markets, 
the bigger risk that it'll be to the real side of the economy. Good policymakers have Hall of Fame batting averages, at least in baseball. I shouldn't probably be using an American baseball analogy, Hamish, with you and your colleagues. But they've got good batting averages, good slugging percentages, but they're wrong all the time. The job in this business is to be wrong in ways in which you can correct mid-course. And I wonder whether they're on a path where they can correct mid-course. If it turns out that inflation moves higher on a non-transitory basis, that market expectations for higher prices beget still higher prices in something we really haven't seen since the late 1970s in the United States, then they decide they have to do something about it. My guess is markets figure it out before the central bank. Markets will say, we know what they're going to do. And so markets, in some sense, immediately tighten expectations. The Fed then plays catch up, and virtually every asset in the world has to be repriced based on a new price deck. That's hugely consequential, not least for the world's investors, but it's probably more consequential to the real economy, more consequential to, at least in the U.S., 52% of our fellow citizens have no access to the U.S. stock market, do not have a positive balance sheet, don't have equity in their house, don't own any piece of the stock market in a portfolio or retirement account. Sadly, they're the ones who are going to be hurt the most because you will almost assuredly in that scenario go into a recession, which really begs the question, what does the Fed and the fiscal authorities do then? QE 349, fiscal policy of 10 and 20 trillion dollars. It's a problem. So I am not at all against the Fed making bets, but they've got to be in a position where they are listening to incoming information rather than pushing it aside because it's providing inconvenient facts. And the anecdotes of the last month or two, I think, are quite troubling. The Federal Reserve says that there are, I believe, 8.2 million Americans that were working pre-COVID that aren't working now and that they won't be needing to change policy until those 8.2 million people get back to work. I don't think that's the right framework. There is no returning to a status quo ante. COVID has fundamentally affected every job, every part of our economy, every bit of capital flows. So I don't like the, well, we're not going to do anything till we get back to January of 2020. Moreover, if they insist on saying the labor markets have to be back at full employment, they should be troubled by what they're seeing and hearing in the data. And that is, there's still an unemployment rate, which is materially higher than before COVID. But there's a massive number of job openings that aren't being filled. So in some economic sense, given the state of the economy, given fears about COVID, given the incremental payments that are being made for people not to work out of compassion to take care of them, in some sense, I could look at the data and say, we're something close to full employment, even though lots of Americans aren't working. So these are the risks. And I'm hopeful that the plural of anecdote is evidence. And if the evidence continues to mount in this direction, the Fed won't let its pride persuade them to not call it the way that they then see it. And that's the challenge for policy, uh, both here and I should say around the world. My discussion, Hamish, with you has sounded 
awfully American-centric. It's partly a parochial thing. But I'd also make one other point. It is exceedingly hard for the rest of the world's central banks to make policy independent of what the Federal Reserve is doing. So if the Fed is making an error, then that error isn't confined to the U.S. because the dollar is so dominant around the world and the Fed's loose monetary policy finds its way intellectually and otherwise into everyone else's economy. So the bet that the Fed and the Treasury are making isn't an American bet. It's a bet on the global economy of which there are a number of partners, including our friends at the RBA. Uh, Well, thank you, Kevin. And maybe we could move on to the market outlook. You know, Charlie Munger at the Berkshire Hathaway annual general meeting this year made a comment that I thought was very apt at the moment. He said, if you're not a little confused by what's going on, you don't know it. And I must admit, I'm a little bit confused about what's going on at the moment. And certainly our conversation so far has really said the complexity. And you're talking about have humility looking out. And I find it hard, almost probably the hardest I've found it in 13 years, to really predict how markets are going to perform over the next 12 months. On one side of the equation, we have the vaccines. We have this super loose monetary and fiscal situation. We have an accelerating economy. And you could actually see markets sort of riding on the back of that. And we have been seeing markets since these vaccines being discovered riding incredibly strongly on the back of that story. But then we have what I would call risks hiding in plain sight. Here, we have that inflation risk. What happens if the Fed's wrong? And you just painted a picture. Well, if it's wrong, it's not that pretty. It's going to affect all assets. Uh, Here in the market may well preempt what the Fed does In any event, we have still, I think, some risk around the vaccines and whether what's going on in India could lead to another wave where a virus escapes the current vaccines. That will either happen or it won't happen. I have no idea what the probabilities on that are. And then you talked about bubbles. We've got certain meme stocks. We've got a wave of retail investors who have never been in the market in millions and millions of people, almost gambling in the market driven on by TikTok and Wall Street bets and Robin Hood and other factors. And then we have cryptocurrencies and whether they're bubbles or not. So how do you see risks at the moment? And are you concerned about there's a lot of euphoria and everything just keeps going up at the moment. And we've seen the strongest rally in a short period that we've seen in a very long period of time. How concerned are you about the risks on the downside in this world? So in one word, concerned. In several words, I'd say the challenge that you pose in predicting markets in the next 12 months, I think, are exceedingly high. Let me see if I can describe that plainly. One is, what do we know? What we know in the post-vaccine world, that the demand side of the global economy has moved faster than the supply side. The demand side have people buying stuff and coming back to work. We're going to be by summer in most of the Western world, seeing the supply side come back as people feel comfortable engaging and travel and leisure and interacting. So that's what we think we know. But why is this such, I think, a difficult moment? Because the world's policymakers have announced a big regime change. So it's hard for markets to understand and calibrate 
when the rules of the road have fundamentally changed. Let me give a couple examples of regime change, and then I'll give my best forecast for markets. Your friend and mine, Janet Yellen, gave an important speech this morning, New York time, in which she outlined the importance of the next $4 trillion of government stimulus coming from the Biden administration. And she said, basically, that we need to rethink how we've been talking and thinking about deficits and debts over the last 40 years. And in light of the world where interest rates are low and, in her judgment, likely to stay low for such a long period, there's really not such an obligation to think about what we used to say, living within one's means. You can read her remarks for yourselves, as can your listeners, but it's a different outline for how to think about debts and deficits and spending. And she basically said, in my view, is we can have much bigger governments and much bigger government spending relative to GDP, and we can pay for some of that through taxes, but maybe some of it can just roll onto the credit card. My words, obviously, not hers. That's a fundamental regime change in how we in the U.S., how you in Australia, have decided to conduct policy both in the role of the private sector and the government and the way in which these things are funded. So that's a major regime change. And I don't think that that's a one-off. I think that's probably happening to one degree or another in most major sovereign capitals around the world. Second big regime change is most of us in the last 30 years have grown up at a time of more integrated global markets where the G20, including Australia, China, the U.S., members of Western Europe, Canada, and others, we were working towards a more integrated set of financial markets and more integrated economies. As we sit here on this podcast now, that statement of fact is simply no longer true. That's a statement of history. The world is imperfectly finding its way to new spheres of influence around the world and some degree of deglobalization at rates we can't know. But we shouldn't think that the last 30 years trends of globalizations are likely for the next 30. If anything, the risks are the other way. So at a time of massive regime change in the conduct of governments and economic policy, financial markets are being asked to take in a lot. And the other reason, the final reason I'd say why financial markets are at this really integral point is normally in the last 40 years, we look at financial markets and they tell us something about what's likely to be in the future. Financial markets would inform our judgments because willing buyers and willing sellers are meeting in these markets and telling us a price. And the price is a judgment on the future. When I look at my financial markets as we speak, the largest bidder in many of those markets are governments. The largest buyer of U.S. Treasuries are now the Federal Reserve. So these markets are revealing less about the future and more about government actors participating in markets, hiding market signals. So all of that tells me that's a lot for markets to try to figure out and account for. And that's why if any of those things upset markets over the course of the next 12 months, the upsetting could be quite significant. So my guess is we're going to see increases both in volatility as well as the volatility of volatility as we're racing through the next 12 months with a series of facts that we can only hypothesize now. But overall, I would simply say 
I know that many say it is very difficult to call bubbles, very difficult to call manias, but if I look broadly across assets, I would say our governments have been trying to bid up asset prices for most of the last dozen years, especially over the last 12 months or so. And what happens if the governments either are forced to exit being such a big participant in these markets because of inflation, or the markets decide to exert their own influence over governments, something that happens quite frequently in foreign exchange markets. It makes me, I guess I'll end with the word I started with, concerned. And you mentioned, Kevin, the word bubbles there. There's, let's talk about one of them, digital currencies and crypto, particularly the private cryptocurrency space, currencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and there's others that are almost joke forms of private cryptocurrencies. Do you believe that they're ultimately going to, these private cryptocurrencies emerge as genuine alternatives to national currencies? Or do you think we're kind of witnessing a classic speculative bubble? This is now over $2 trillion. It's breathtaking when you look at where the prices of some of these cryptocurrencies have gone. So how do you view the private cryptocurrency space? And we may get on to how the national currencies may evolve in the future with a central bank sort of mandated digital currency. But let's start with the private space and your word of bubbles at the moment. Is this a bubble? Isn't this a bubble? How do you view what's going on? So I wish I could say that the only bubbles are in these new crypto assets that have found their way into markets. I mean, listen, my view is We were not that long ago, call it 18 months ago, in what was described as the crypto winter. Stories were being written how Bitcoin and Ethereum and the rest, they were in bubble-like territories after booms early in the decade, and no one was going to be interested in these things anymore, and their prices plummeted. Well, what caused their prices to get out of crypto winter back into extremely elevated prices, back to levels, in some cases, beyond where they were. My view is a regime change in government policy. And so when I look at Bitcoin, I don't believe Bitcoin would be valued anywhere near its current prices if fiscal and monetary policy had acted like it had historically. The regime change that's happened at the Federal Reserve from Janet Yellen to Jay Powell is a fundamental change in the conduct of monetary policy. And because of that fundamental change, in my view, Bitcoin got a bid that otherwise wouldn't exist. And unless and until the world's central banks develop central bank digital currencies, which are convertible readily back into the fiat dollar or fiat RMB or fiat Australian dollar, Bitcoin is serving as a version of digital gold. And if we end up in one of these really ugly, adverse scenarios over the next 12 or 24 months, that's the scenario in which these sorts of assets can be bid up further. And many of the people that have been bidding up those assets, I think, are bidding them up in response to what they fear is irresponsible economic policy from our governments. So in that sense, I think it's rational. If you tell me the state of the world, if you told me that we're going to have a soft landing 12 and 18 months from now in most of the major financial capitals in the world, well, then I would say many of these assets look like they are priced too highly. 
but in a world of volatility, in a world before the big central banks decide to stake their own claim in central bank digital currencies, it's one of the few assets on my screen that might be telling us something about a dangerous world in front of us. And listen, Hamish, you've known me now for a long time. I tend to be quite an optimist. I tend to believe that the resilience of the Australian economy, the hard work of your citizens and ours in the U.S., are the secret sauce to global economic growth. I still believe it. I will still say over the long horizon, I wouldn't want to bet against these Western-style economies. But at the same time, I don't want to sound Pollyannish in light of the risks that are being undertaken and underwritten by governments like the U.S. over the course of the last year. Yeah, my personal view, and I think I'm going to write something on this, Kevin. I I think we are witnessing one of the, for a whole series of reasons you've articulated what's going on with central banks and policy at the moment, one of the great manias in history, I think if we write in 20 or 30 years in the future and we look back at private cryptocurrencies, I think it is almost a virtual certainty all these private cryptocurrencies will go to zero in a long enough period of time. They are purely imaginary. The whole term that they're crypto gold, I'll just remind people there is no gold backing these things. There is absolutely nothing backing these cryptocurrencies. I think I'm going to write a piece. I don't know, and I agree with what's going on in the world, that these prices could remain very strong because of what central banks are currently doing. But in the long term, these are not assets. They're illusions. They are absolutely nothing. And I think in history, when we write to whatever they inflate to, there are $2 trillion where they get to $5 trillion. I think they probably keep going up in this environment. They are. But I think when history finally gets written, this is almost going to be the tulip mania scenario in history books, maybe 30 years in the history. And maybe people are smart enough to leave this ball at one minute to midnight before it all turns to pumpkin and mice, it will turn to pumpkin and mice. It is a complete imaginary illusion, in my view. Uh, well, Kevin, I just have one final question. It's been a real tour around what's happening, in, particularly in central bank land, and questions that are right on investors' minds at the moment. What do you think is probably the most important thing on your mind that we haven't spoken about in the hour? Yeah, so we've covered a lot. I would say... The open question that we haven't really talked much about is if you believe my view of economics, which is probably out of consensus, which what matters most to the Australian economy, the U.S. economy, has much more to do with the micro foundations of macro than macro. We've talked about macro geopolitics, macro fiscal and monetary policy. But what matters most to the 21st century and our economies and the social contract between our citizens and our governments is what's happening at the ground level. And if what we've done with the best of intentions over the last year or decade is we've undermined those micro foundations, then we're going to have a tougher slog in the 21st century. But if, as I'm hopeful is the case, Real people are still going about their business, still looking out for their families, still figuring out ways to do business better, how to make ends meet for their families, how to create more opportunities, then those micro foundations will be as strong as ever. And those micro foundations involve words that we used to learn in economics that are a little forbidden in today's lexicon, and it's words like culture. Is there still a culture of hard work at the micro level? 
Is there still a respect for the rule of law? Is there still a real willingness for us to figure out how to work together? Is there a sense of community that can make cities and states and provinces more prosperous? Is there a view that we're not in a world of zero-sum economics, but really it's a world of positive-sum economics, so the best of our days are in front of us? If those micro-foundations are not paying as much attention to all we've talked about in the last uh, 40 minutes or so, then I'm really confident the 21st century is going to be one of peace and prosperity. But if we're undermining that with the best of intentions through government policies, if we somehow suggested that work isn't that important, so long as you get a check, it doesn't matter where it comes from, then, you know, if the dignity of work is still real, the interest in innovation is real, then I'm optimistic. So I think what we haven't talked about is probably what's happening at the kitchen table in cities like yours and mine, and whether people have the same sort of abiding spirit, the abiding culture that has created a post-war, post-1945 Western world that was not perfect, but that was trending in the right direction, where there was huge amounts of progress broadly defined. And if those kitchen table conversations aren't preoccupied with the kinds of things we've talked about, then I feel pretty good about it. But the real question strike me is, that are relevant and quite rarely discussed are those micro ones. They tend to be crowded out by the macro because our governments have been in our lives and these events have been so capturing our imaginations over the last decade. And Kevin, that was, I think, an incredibly insightful thing to be saying, particularly the issue about culture and work. And it's hard to see in many political environments around the world at the moment, that we're really seeing the leadership. And particularly when you think about a country's culture, you actually need some form of bipartisan agreement on things that are in the national interest. But there's almost wherever you go in Western countries around the world, there's almost an absence of leadership on both sides of the political spectrum that deals with some of the issues that you're talking about that goes to national culture. And it's probably a worrying side. And what the symptoms of it are are probably deep and entrenched. But this issue is, does it cause big problems for us in not having those cultural elements of society? Yeah. Correct. Are we making them harder and harder over time? And Yeah. It's probably a discussion for another podcast. But if I could just say a final word on that, which is what I think is unique to your country and mine, and I would say not unique to all major countries in the world, is politics have always been ugly since the founding of our republic in the U.S., and I don't know my Australian history well enough to say, politics have always been around. But if the politics have now infected our daily lives such that we define each other in our society by our politics rather than our individual traits, our individual abilities, our strengths, our weaknesses, then we can be past the Rubicon. So I will feel better if the politics, broadly speaking, in our government is less a part of our lives such that we can get on with our business. But if the politics have taken over, then the 21st century are going to be a very different century. But I'll leave with a word of optimism. In spite of our government in the U.S.'s best efforts across administrations to do harm to this economy, my guess is they have failed. The underlying micro-foundations, which seem to have been put down by regime changes in policy, won't prove sufficient to beat down the hard work ethic of the American people and similar ethic in Australia. 
And if that's the case, then I'm going to end with optimism and say this is a tough period in which we need to bridge ourselves from troubling times. But I'm hopeful that there's light on the other side of it, and the 21st century can be one of growth and, frankly, one with less confrontation than we confronted over the last century. Well, Kevin, what a great way to end on a message of optimism, which I also share. So, Kevin Walsh, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Great to be with you. That was Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan, talking to former Federal Reserve Governor Kevin Walsh. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening. 